do take your seats. And if you have a Bible, if you could pick that up, that would be great. We're starting a new series in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. And so Vicky Golby's going to come and read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 before Stephen Jones comes to preach. So the reading is from, as Nathan said, 1 Samuel 1 verses 1 to 28. That can be found on page 271 of the Church Bibles. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival went up to the house of the Lord. Sorry. Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, And the Lord remembered her. So, in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. 
Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Thank you, Vicky. Good morning, everyone. Before we look at God's word, let's pray together and ask him to help us to learn and to benefit from it. So let's pray. Father God in heaven, we do thank you this morning for your word. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you might deepen our faith, that we might know Christ more, that we might trust him and love him more. And Father, we pray this morning too that your word would be powerful and effective in the sense that it widens your kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we especially pray for the young people downstairs that you would work in their lives, you would work in the the faith in them which is pleasing to you. Father, we pray for other churches around this morning where your word is faithfully preached and we ask that you might bless that Christ would be lifted high in this nation this morning and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 1, although I'll be touching briefly on the first part of chapter 2 as well. And the title is Heard by God. Well, in 12 weeks' time, it will be the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. Our new king will finally be crowned. It's going to be a weekend of importance and gravitas and pomp and ceremony at least for some, and for others it will be a good excuse for a three-day weekend. I'll leave which of those options are open to you. But this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of 1 Samuel, and Nathan has titled this series Dawn of the Kingdom. And in this series we're going to see not simply a new king crowned, but we're going to see a new kingdom established in the nation of Israel. The book of 1 Samuel starts in the age of the judges. This is roughly 1100 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Israel is really little more than a loose collection of tribes, blessed by the Lord, blessed together, but in terms of politics and military and so on, just a loose collection of tribes in the same region. But by the end of this book, Israel is going to become a united kingdom under, first of all, King Saul, and then as we move into 2 Samuel, King David. But as 1 Samuel starts, Israel is ruled and defended from time to time by various judges raised by the Lord to lead his people, or even just certain tribes of his people through certain difficulties. As we begin in 1 Samuel, this is a time of great ungodliness in Israel. Morality in Israel was low, we might say. 
Israel frequently chased after other gods. Idolatry was commonplace. Some of you will be familiar with the refrain from the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. As we start in 1 Samuel, even the sons of the high priest, even the sons of Eli, uh, whom we're going to meet a little bit more later on in the series, the sons of the high priest, they were ungodly. They were swindlers. They were adulterers, as we'll see next time. And yet, but we're going to see the Lord intervene in the life of Israel by his grace. The Lord is going to raise up another judge. He's going to raise up a prophet to lead his people. And this prophet is going to have the task, he's going to be given the task of establishing a kingdom in Israel. He's going to help to create a united Israel. He's going to be given the task of anointing the first king. We're going to see Samuel, the prophet Samuel, raised up for this task. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see the Lord himself at work in history through various circumstances in Israel. We're going to learn about our God who is in control of events. We're going to learn about a sovereign God. We're going to see God's providence. That sounds quite an old-fashioned or a theological word. But God's providence is his control of history used for the good of his people. We're going to see a God in providential control of events. The book might be called 1 Samuel, and Samuel is obviously going to be a key character in the book. But I'm sure we'll come to see that the key character in 1 Samuel is the Lord himself. In chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord is introduced there as the Lord Almighty. That's the title that he is given there, the Lord Almighty. And it's a common title for the Lord in the Old Testament, but this is the first time in the Bible that the Lord is called, is titled the Lord Almighty or the Lord of Hosts, depending on which Bible translation you use. The Lord Almighty. It speaks of the Lord's authority, his control over all the armies, the hosts of heaven and Israel. Ultimately, this title of the Lord speaks of God's control, his rule, his sovereignty over everything and everybody. So again, over the next few weeks, as we progress through 1 Samuel, we're going to see a God who is working out his good purposes in the lives of his people, then and now. We're going to see a God who is working out his good purposes for his kingdom in this world. We're going to see a God who is working out his good purposes despite of, even sometimes through, human weakness and sin and rebellion and foolishness and unfaithfulness. We're going to see a God who brings about his plans, brings them to fruition in the most unlikely of circumstances and sometimes through the most unlikely of people, people like you and me. We're going to see the circumstances through which God will bless his people by giving them a king. 
And then as we look at the kingdom established in Israel or how that came about, we're going to be given a foretaste of an even greater kingdom to come, the kingdom of our King and Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a little bit of how we're going to progress, I trust, in 1 Samuel. Three points this morning then to this sermon. Three points to our sermon in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The first point. We're going to see this morning how the Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the pain of his people. The Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the pain of his people. Verses 1 to 8. We've already seen how at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel was largely an ungodly nation. But now we're introduced to an exception. We're introduced to Elkanah. Now this man seems to have been a godly man. His descent is outlined for us. I think the writer there is trying to, to teach us that Elkanah was a man of reputation, of good character, of good descent if you like. He loved his family. He provided for them. He certainly did so as he took them to the tabernacle regularly in worship. And Elkanah was a religious man. All this godliness and ungodliness in Israel. And yet, by way of contrast, Elkanah was a religious man. He was devoted to worshipping the Lord. And we see in these verses that he took and took his family with him for yearly trips to Shiloh to the tabernacle, to make sacrifices to the Lord. Some of you will remember that at this time, the tabernacle was the tent where sacrifices were made, the center of Israel's worship to the Lord. It was the place where Israel met with God and God met with his people Israel. So this is before a permanent temple had been built by Solomon. And the tabernacle at this time was placed in Shiloh. Jerusalem was not yet the capital of Israel. Shiloh was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And that was where the tabernacle was placed at this time. And so Elkanah made these yearly visits to, to Shiloh with his family to worship the Lord. He was a devout and godly man. And yet, but... There was a shadow that lay over Elkanah and his family, despite his godliness. Elkanah had two wives. He was a polygamist. Now, the Old Testament never prohibits explicitly polygamy in God's people. To a certain extent, God tolerated polygamy in the Old Testament, but polygamy is certainly never commended to God's people in the Old Testament. And it was a departure for a man to take more than one wife was a departure from the creation example of Adam and Eve. And when we see examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, even amongst God's people, inevitably that family situation always leads to conflict, to tension, to great unhappiness. You can think of Sarah and Hagar in Abraham's household, and Leah and Rachel as well, Jacob. So here we have Elkanah, and he's married to both Hannah and Penina. And we're told two crucial facts about these wives, about these ladies. Hannah was barren. Hannah 
it seemed that she was incapable of bearing children. In verse 5, we're told that the Lord had closed her womb. She was infertile. And her infertility may have led Elkanah to have married a second wife, this lady Penina. And Penina had been fruitful in providing sons and daughters to Elkanah. So Hannah's barrenness and Penina's fruitfulness caused great tension and conflict and jealousy within this family. Home must have been a really tough place for Hannah because of this. You know, today for some people, childlessness can be so, so painful. A real pain that some people have to deal with in their lives. And in that society, back then in Israel's history, childlessness was both painful and shameful. Because in that society, it was assumed that a failure to conceive was a result of God's displeasure. And so this childlessness would have been painful, extremely painful for Hannah. And what made it worse was the goading of the other wife, Penina. She seemed to have derived great pleasure from reminding Hannah of her barrenness. She seemed to have great pleasure in reminding Hannah that she, Penina, had provided children for her husband, whilst Hannah had failed to do so. And in fact, in verse 6, we're told that Penina enjoyed provoking and irritating Hannah about this matter. And what was worse, Hannah's unhappiness came to a great crescendo every year at the tabernacle. Each year, Elkanah took his family to Shiloh to present offerings, and probably peace offerings or fellowship offerings under the Mosaic law. Every year they would go to Shiloh, and this was the way that these offerings worked. They would go and they would make their offering, and a portion of the offering of these fellowship offerings was given to the Lord, and the rest was returned to the worshippers. And the worshippers would eat these offerings, or the remainder of these offerings, the portion not given to the Lord, and they would eat them as a sign of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. So part of these sacrifices, part of these offerings were returned, the family would eat them, and Panina and her children would eat some of them. And then we get to verse 5. Apparently verse 5 is quite tricky in the Hebrew, Hebrew but it seems to suggest there that Elkanah gave Panina a double portion, sorry, gave Hannah a double portion of this meat. The husband gave his barren wife a double portion of this meat, perhaps to show that despite her barrenness, he loved and honoured her. Perhaps he did so to compensate for her childlessness. And yet, sadly, in turn, this caused even more jealousy and more provocation from Penina towards Hannah. In verse 8, we see that as the husband, Elkanah seemed to have made genuine attempts to comfort Hannah. I think that's what's happening there. I think Elkanah isn't being unkind. He's genuinely trying to comfort his wife by reminding her that he loves her. I think we're to take that at face value. Perhaps it was a little insensitive, but I, I don't think there's any hint there that Elkanah was expressing disappointment with Hannah. 
or accusation towards her. He was expressing genuine love towards his wife. Nonetheless, it was such a painful situation for Hannah. And this went on, verse 7, year after year after year. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord had great purposes for Hannah through her pain. Can I speak to you this morning if you are experiencing emotional pain as one of God's people? Perhaps it's something you're experiencing day after day, week after week, year after year. Perhaps one day it's a pain that the Lord may remove from you. Perhaps it's a pain that you are going to have to contend with for the rest of your earthly life until you're with the Lord. And I don't want to minimize that pain for you. I don't want to be flippant about it because that pain might be so hard to bear. But if you're a, king, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a Christian, the Lord always has purposes for us in our pain. He has purposes for you, for his glory, and for his kingdom. Perhaps this morning the Lord is using your pain to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to develop your character. Perhaps this morning the Lord is teaching you to depend upon him more. Perhaps the Lord is helping you to fix your eyes, not on the here and now, but on eternity. Perhaps in your pain, the Lord is giving you the ability, the experience to comfort others in a similar situation. As we heard from Beryl a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, perhaps in your pain, you'll be given gospel opportunities you never would have had otherwise. Perhaps one day in the future, we may see the Lord's purposes in our pain. Maybe we won't. Maybe that will only come to light when we're in glory. But we need to be assured this morning that the Lord has kingdom purposes for his people in our pain. That the Lord was sovereign in Hannah's circumstances. He had closed her womb, the Bible says. And the Lord is sovereign in our circumstances too. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, and we may hear more from him as the series goes on, has written an excellent commentary on 1 Samuel but he says, let us not play down the heavy grief of Hannah's or our own bleak circumstances. But let us moderate our despair by realizing it may be but another prelude to a mighty work of God. Hannah's despair was going to be a prelude to a mighty work of God. Hannah's pain wasn't pointless. And if we're a Christian this morning... Our pain is not pointless either. And that brings us to our second point. The Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the prayers of his people. The Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the prayers of his people. Well, despair drove Hannah to pray. Often it, despair does that, doesn't it? It always should do that but it often succeeds in driving us to prayer when we are in despair. One year, the family makes their usual annual visit to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. 
Hannah's there too, and she remains in the tabernacle to pray after the family had eaten the peace offering together. And Hannah there prays about her desire for her son. Her praying is so fervent, it's so emotional, in front of Eli the high priest, that he assumes that she is drunk, a fact that she denies. It made me think, I know we all pray in different ways and we're different characters, but is my prayer ever so fervent that someone might see me and assume that I was drunk because I was so fervent in prayer? I don't know. Works out differently prayer in different characteristics. Something to think about. But Hannah vows there that if the Lord grants her a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord for his whole life. She says there that no razor would ever be used on her son's head. Well, in number six, bit of homework for you maybe later on, in number six, we're taught there about the Nazarite vow. Israelites were given the opportunity to dedicate themselves for a period of time to a special, in a special way to the Lord. And one way to demonstrate the seriousness of that dedication was by not cutting your hair. So when Hannah said a razor will never cut his hair, she was saying that this child would always be dedicated to the Lord in this special way for his whole life. This was Hannah's commitment. But what are we to make of this then? Is this Hannah twisting God's arm? Is it manipulation? Is that what Hannah's trying to do? Well, again, I don't personally think so. I think Hannah's just stating a fact. Lord, if you answer my prayer, I will respond by giving a son back to you. And Hannah's prayer is wonderfully answered. She prays, Eli hears, and he adds his priestly blessing to her prayer. Hannah conceives in the normal way, and a child is born, and she names him Samuel meaning heard by God. We might say that the Lord was working out his kingdom purposes through the prayers of a barren and a hurting woman. See, through Hannah's prayers, the Lord was going to bring kingship to Israel. Humanly speaking, Samuel, the bringer of God's kingdom to Israel, was only there would only be there because of the pain and the prayers of this woman. Because of Hannah's fervent prayers, which arose from her painful circumstances. Our God is a sovereign God. He can bring about his purposes in any way he chooses. And yet, he often brings his, purp brings his purposes about through the prayers of his people. Isn't that wonderful? That God would often bring about his purposes through the prayers of his beloved people like you and me. The Lord brings blessings so often through the prayers of his people. He blesses families. He blesses churches. He blesses nations. He brings revival. He brings reformation. He saves souls through the prayers of his people so often. How we need to prioritize prayer as a church and as individuals. As a church, we need to prioritize corporate prayer. We need to make it our habit to attend prayer meetings week by week. 
I know that some of us here this morning would love to be able to get to the prayer meeting to prioritize it, but ill health or jobs or children get in the way. But if we really want to see our church blessed, our families blessed, our nation blessed, we need to prioritize our corporate prayers. This morning, this passage demonstrates for us the power of individual prayer. That individual prayer can change the course of a family or of a church or of a nation. What can we bring then from Hannah's prayer? Well, we need to be encouraged this morning that we can bring our prayers to our God, especially in the midst of pain. When we are in great anguish and grief, as Hannah puts it in verse 16, our God, our Father, as we've been hearing earlier on, our Father invites us to pour out our anguish, our pain to him. Again, comment from Dale Ralph Davis. It won't make him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distress at his feet. It won't make our God nervous or ill at ease. In fact, we glorify God. We bring him honor when we bring our cares to him. When we acknowledge that our God cares about us and wants to hear from us and loves us, that's a wonderful way that we can honor him as his children by recognizing that we have a father who cares. Wonderful phrase about Hannah. It says there that she poured out her soul to the Lord. We can do the same. We're to pour out our souls to the Lord. Now, our God may not always answer in the way that we would choose. He may not answer our prayers in the timing that we would choose. But our God hears and our God cares. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. The Lord so often works through the prayers of his people. We see that in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, we pray. Uh, another commentator, Warren Wearsby, said, It's an awesome fact that, humanly speaking, the future of the nation rested with this godly woman's prayers. And yet, how much in history has depended on the prayers of suffering and sacrificing people, especially mothers? And so there's a bit of a challenge here for you, ladies, particularly, especially this morning. Pray for the men of the church. Pray for the men who, in your situation, maybe or are leading your church, maybe leading your home. Pray for your children, because the prayers of ladies are crucial to the life of the church. Hudson Taylor was perhaps one of the most significant missionaries ever. He was born in Barnsley in 1832, and Hudson Taylor spent 51 years as a missionary in China and helped to found the China Inland Mission. And who knows how much of China's Christianity today is directly or indirectly attributed to his ministry. But at the age of 17, Hudson was far from the Lord. He'd rebelled against his parents and his faith, or their faith rather. So his mother, Amelia, resolved to pray for her son. To summarize, Amelia went away nearby to stay with another family member for a few days. And while she was there, she shut herself in a room 
determined to pray for her son Hudson until she received assurance that he would be saved. A few days later, Hudson Taylor's mother, Amelia, returned home, and Hudson rushed to meet her at the door to tell her that while she was away, he had given his life to the Lord. And Hudson Taylor soon learned that at the very moment he'd repented of his sins, his mother had been on her knees pleading for his salvation. Now, the Lord brings about his kingdom purposes through the prayers of his people. And we need to be encouraged to pray likewise. Thirdly and finally, the Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the sacrifices of his people. Sorry if you like alliteration, I failed miserably there. Two P's and an S, never mind. The Lord works out his kingdom purposes through the sacrifices of his people. We see in verses 21 to 28 how Hannah went about fulfilling her vow. She waited until Samuel was weaned, probably in that culture. He'd have been two or three years old. And Hannah takes Samuel to Shiloh. She offers sacrifices there. And she leaves him there to serve the Lord. Well, apparently under Old Testament law, Elkanah could have annulled Hannah's vow. As her husband, he could have said, no, Samuel's stopping with us. I have the authority to annul this vow. But the husband chose not to. He honoured Hannah's vow. Just as a a little aside, it shows how we as men should honour Married men should honour their wives. We have leadership in the home, and yet we should honour our wives and honour their godliness. We should give thanks for the godliness of our wives, that godliness which puts us to shame very often. And Hannah acknowledges answered prayer before the Lord. So should we, of course. Hannah kept her word. So should we. And Hannah sacrificed her son to the Lord's service. She gave him into the Lord's service. She brought him to the tabernacle and left him there to serve the Lord. And the Lord honoured that sacrifice and he used it in his kingdom purposes. Maybe you put yourself in that position this morning. You think that's incredible. It's almost unbelievable, incomprehensible to me. How could this lady give a three-year-old over to service to the Lord. felt that very challenging as I was preparing this week. But I do want to challenge you. I want to challenge me this morning with these thoughts. Perhaps, and I say it gently to myself and to you, perhaps the problem isn't with Hannah. Perhaps the problem is with us sometimes. Perhaps the problem isn't that Hannah loved Samuel too little, Perhaps the problem is that we love the Lord too little to understand Hannah's actions. We remember that the Lord Jesus Christ challenges us. And Nathan, I remember, mentioned these verses a couple of weeks ago. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, we're not to misunderstand Jesus there. Jesus isn't saying that we should literally hate our parents and our children. 
But Jesus is saying that our love for him should be so great that we should be able to describe our lesser love for others as hate by way of comparison. You get the idea that our great love for the Lord, lesser love for our families, and our love for the Lord should be so great that our love for our families ought to be able to be described as hate by way of comparison. That's such a challenge, how we need to pray that the Lord would change our hearts to be, to reflect that notion. So we might say, we might speculate that Hannah's greater love for the Lord led her to let go of the child that she'd so desired and loved. She held on to her son lightly. And in the same way, the Lord calls upon us to hold lightly onto the things of this world, even people in comparison to himself. Maybe this morning there's something that the Lord is calling you to let go of in obedience to him. And I aren't necessarily at this stage talking about sins, about things we know we're to let go of, that's quite clear. I'm talking about good gifts that the Lord has given to us. Maybe a friendship or a relationship or a, a house or an aspiration or a, an income or a, a career. Is the Lord calling us to let go of something so that we may serve him faithfully, that we might serve him better? Are we being called to make a sacrifice for his service? Back to Hudson Taylor's mom. Apparently, Hudson Taylor's mom prayed that Hudson might become a missionary to China even before he was saved. And her prayers, not just for his salvation, that he would, that, but also that he'd become a, mi a missionary, they were answered. Hudson Taylor's mom took Hudson to Liverpool and put him on a boat to China. And she knew that she might never see him again. A great sacrifice that that mother made. But what was the result of her sacrifice, humanly speaking? We could speculate the salvation of perhaps hundreds of thousands of souls. See, our God works through the sacrificial service of his people. And we see that, of course, demonstrated to us in his own work our God himself worked through the sacrificial giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. And so he calls us to serve sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom. Throughout the Bible, throughout church history, the Lord works through such sacrifice. And yet, our God in his grace, he still encourages us to do so. Because he says, if you sacrifice from this way, you will not lose out. The Lord Jesus said, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. If we serve in that way, God is no man's debtor. We will be blessed and rewarded for sacrificial service. Just going to touch on chapter 2 briefly this morning. Because in verses 1 to 11, under the power of the Holy Spirit, Hannah responds in praise to the Lord for everything that he has done for her. She tells us that he is the God who opposes the proud and exalts the humble. He is the God who is at work despite the wickedness of men. 
And Hannah's wonderfully given a little foretaste of the future. She sees there a king. She sees God who will anoint a king in the future and will exalt this king and strengthen him. We will see the Lord do this in Saul and then in King David and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to finish then this morning. Our God is the God who uses our pain, he uses our prayers, he uses our sacrifices in his kingdom purposes. Back to Dale Ralph Davis who says, the severe trial of Hannah proved to be the salvation of a whole people. This then is our God, a wise God, a gracious God, a powerful God, a sovereign God, He's a good God, and yet he's not a God to be trifled with. He's the God before whom we must kneel, we must submit. If you've not yet this morning committed yourself to the Lord, then do so this morning. Ask him to forgive your sin. Trust in Jesus' death on the cross. Live your life in service to God. Our God has good plans and purposes for all who bow the knee to him. We can be assured that all men and all women will bring God glory. That's the purpose. That's why God has made us as human beings, to bring him glory. But that leaves us with one question. Will we glorify our holy God as we receive his just wrath against our sin for all eternity? Will we stay outside of his kingdom or will we glorify God by receiving his forgiveness in Jesus, being a trophy of his grace for all eternity? Are we going to become and live as members of his kingdom?